Hello, everybody. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 30 for Knowledge. I am Danny. I'm George. And it has been a long old while. It has been a while. We've had, we've had the winter break. We had our very intentional winter break that we totally intended. Feeling rested? I feel so rested and fresh-faced. Especially after surviving COVID as well. Uh, I, I, I survived round two of COVID, which uh, I don't recommend at all. But, you know, if there's ever a time to do it, yeah, sure. The holidays, why not? Right in the smack of Christmas. <laughs> Absolutely. And it has been a long time since we've we've been in a room together. I'm finally excited to be... In the studio, which is my bedroom, where yeah, I always back. seem to be. <laughs> we're, we're back to bring you a new year of of um, very critically acclaimed podcasting. We've uh, we, we we had our numbers from last year. Yeah, we released nine episodes in ten countries. The horrible sandwiches are coming. We're the, the yet to do that. We we released six hundred and eight minutes of content according to Spotify. Wow. Yeah, it, it sounds like not not a bad amount. Um, and we are officially at one point recognised as a top fifteen educational podcast in Bahrain. <laughs> I mean, I will take any accolades, no matter how big or small. I mean, even to get onto a top fifteen <laughs> list is very exciting. I'm putting it on my CV. My LinkedIn profile, absolutely, <laughs> member of a top fifty podcast in Bahrain. <laughs> Educational podcast. <laughs> educational podcast. That's the important bit. Not just any old podcast. An educational podcast. I mean, it's nice to actually, you know, we've been acknowledged as being educational. Yeah. It's working. Yeah, no, the, 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 this, this was worth it. The money investment was worth it. I, I'm, I'm happy. And it wasn't a complete holiday, the winter break. I've been researching, been researching the a, whole time. A very I've, serious topic. Yeah, I've read a book and a half. Um, really good books, which I'll get to in a minute. But um, yeah, so... Today we're learning the history of surgery. History of surgery. What are your initial thoughts to that, Danny? Uh, when you first mentioned it, I was like, well, this is going to be gruesome. And then I was like, no, nah, George wouldn't pick a gruesome, horrible subject. That's what I do. But I, that was exactly my intention. <laughs> um, so today you're going to be my apprentice. Ooh. Observe and I will teach you, young aspirant. Now go out and get me some dead bodies. Grim. But that actually, that, that would be your job. Oh, really? As yeah. an actual... So there were such things as surgeon apprentices. And, yeah, and like, it would be at part-time, you know, part-time grave robbing, essentially. We might, I might be getting ahead of uh, the topic here. Uh, what time period does this start in? What time period does it start? Well, we have to go really far back. <laughs> We've got to really start far back. And, in fact, I'm not even going to cut them up. You're going to cut them up. Okay. And I'm going to go and sit in a really high chair and yell, and yell at you and tell you what to do with the body. Okay, we are talking about body. I thought you were talking about the podcast for a second. Like, you're going to just say all this and I'll, I'll cut it up into something podcast-like. Oh, it'd be like editing process. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> um, I've got two main sources for today. One is Bad Medicine by David Wooton and The Invention of Surgery, A History of Modern Medicine by David Schneider, MD. Um, in Bad Medicine, Wooton explains that for, for 2,400 years, patients believed that doctors were doing them good. For 2,300 years, they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, wait, what? As in... What happened after 2,400 years? Since the start of medicine, essentially, I mean, it's very easy to look back on these things with hindsight mm -hmm. and, like, be really cruel about like them. like, lol. But we were wrong for a really long time. So in the in the 2,400-year history of medicine, medicine slash surgery, I guess it's not 2,400 years of surgery, but 2,400 years of medicine, the 90% of that was... Incorrect. Okay, cool. That, Did more harm than good. It really puts things in perspective, but okay. Essentially, the last hundred years have been the time when, like, medicine has actually begun to save people's <laughs> lives. Which is quite 
a strange thought, really. Yeah. Are you ready, Danny? I'm so ready. Because we're going, we're going back quite far. Okay. Okay. So, in Bad Medicine, Wuton explores the myriad of failures, misconceptions, and deliberate blind eyes, and the actual revolutions that led to modern medicine. Mm-hmm. Schneider's book, on the other hand, deals with the story of surgery and how it came to be what it is today. Okay. So when I first had the idea for this episode, all I basically wanted, as you mentioned, was to find out loads of gory stories about bad surgery, because we used to be terrible at it. Instead, I've got some great stuff like that, but also an incredible yarn, which takes us all the way back to Hippocrates. And upon putting all my notes together and creating the outline, I very quickly realised that this is, unfortunately, even though this has been in my head for so long, I just want to get it all out. I think it's going to have to be a two-part... The history of surgery is going to have to be two parts. <laughs> there you go. Stay tuned, going very far back in time. Make sure you subscribe for part two of this grisly tale. So going back, way, way back in the in the old-timey wine machine, Hippocrates was born in 460 BCE, or before Common Era, or Old BC, for those of you living in the dark, on the island of Kos in ancient Greece. Now, Danny, have you heard of Hippocrates? I... F- feel like I have, and I feel like he's been mentioned before on the podcast, but I, that, that's probably me reaching. Okay. Um, he is known as the father of medicine. Oh, okay. He believed that disease and illness were caused by things other than the wrath of the gods or okay. divine retribution, which but, is what ancient Greeks used to believe, that it was, you know, Zeus's fault that you were getting sick. So he was one of the first, or was the first, to be like, this isn't a, uh, a god thing this is a, a physical thing this is a physical thing this okay. is from our, our surroundings which is big news at the time big if true um he believed that a person's health was a direct response to someone's diet exercise and exterior factors such as the environment as opposed to like divine judgment so this is big ideas that, that, that sounds extremely modern yeah i mean it's so interesting that, that all of these there's so many like modern people born throughout all times and i suppose like my question that I'm just going to float, and we'll come back to it later as well in the next episode. It's like, at what point does curiosity and, and the, the desire to, to know more about how the world works, at what point does that become go from noble to just, like, downright ghoulish and, like, <laughs> we're stealing bodies and ripping them up? And This was someone's loved one. At what point does... is it? Does, where's the line, Danny? Where's the line? Uh, okay. I, I, I have an answer, but, yeah, we'll leave it for now. I think, I think we need to... I think... We'll come back to that question as as we go throughout. Um, So his branch of medicine became known as the Hippocratic tradition. Oh, so it's just a whole Hippocratic oath thing that it kind of starts from. Exactly. So, yeah, his name is also attributed to a great work called the Hippocratic Corpus, a collection of different ancient medical works strongly associated with Hippocrates and his teachings. But this means that what actually Hippocrates said and what was written after he was alive is easily mixed up. So it's oh, hard okay. to say how much of his work that survived was actually Hippocrates himself. Right, and not just thrown in together with his works and put under his name. And- exactly. Right. Okay. So, like, he had loads of followers and students and that that thread of knowledge, of the ancient Greek knowledge, you know, carried itself through to, as you mentioned, the Hippocratic Oath that doctors didn't mm-hmm. take. So Hippocrates, very, very, very interesting man. And we know that Hippocrates believed in diseases that came from the outside. He believed things about the human body's anatomy that have long since been proven wrong. And he also believed in humorism. Humorism. Yeah, and not like the art of making jokes, unfortunately. Well, I, was gonna I say- don't know what his um, sense of humour was like. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a very serious guy. I mean, I, I feel like he must have been a very serious man. 
but <coughs> I would hope he had a sense of humour. But now any good A-level, maybe even GCSE student of English, knows that Shakespeare set certain plays in hot countries, like or hot places, like Verona, because mm-hmm. the heat is associated with high passions and oh, general sassiness. <laughs> okay, I didn't Is it the stringing bells? I, uh, no, because I didn't do well at GCSE classics. Oh. Or so, literature. So humorism is kind of like that. So it's a kind of a reading of, you know, why is Romeo and Juliet set in, in like, um, in Verona? Because, like, you know, Italy's meant to be hot, and so, right. like, the heat of the country produces, like, hot passions, that kind of, okay. that kind of, like, stereotypical um, idea around, like, environment affecting people. That's humorism. We're going to get to it. Right, okay. But it's kind of a similar ideas. But before I talk about exactly what that is, let's set a context to these medical beliefs. So Wouton in his book argues, for all but the last hundred years... The Hippocratic tradition and the therapies it relied on must have done more harm than good. Hippocrates and his successors established a tradition of medical observation and education. Mm -hmm. They wrote a book called Epidemics, which was a series of case studies, a fact file on each person listing their symptoms and possibly related outbreaks of disease. A filing system, almost. Wow. Having patient records, not necessarily a bad thing. But what did they do with that information? So this was revolutionary at the time, actually looking at individual patient, assessing their symptoms and prescribing some sort of therapy based on that, and which actually, hadn't been done before. And actually getting like quantitative data in terms of like how many people were infected with a well, thing. Or, well, they tried. Okay, okay they tried. Um, quantitative data in like the scientific method, that would come like much later. Right, this okay. is definitely like the start of it. Uh, let's look at what they actually believed about the human body. Wouton in his book writes, Hippocrates and his immediate successors shared two assumptions. One, moderation was a good thing. Mm-hmm. So they prescribed exercise for someone who rested too much or dieting for someone who ate too much. Sounds straightforward. Straightforward. Opposites are cured by opposites, what the Middle Ages was to call the law of Hippocrates. Mm. The second assumption was that you can remove excess fluids from the body by vomiting, diarrhoea or by letting blood. I was wondering whether bloodletting would come into this. Yes. Um, they believed the human body was an integrated whole. In order to understand what was going on inside it, you had to study the fluids that came out of it. Not unreasonable. I mean, there's a long tradition way into the, uh, like the Middle Ages all the way up to Renaissance where, you know, looking at someone's urine was like the go-to for physicians. And not only just looking. And not, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, there might have been some tasting going on as well. Um, and in the second episode, we'll talk about someone who like took the kind of finding out more by putting I stuff mean, on in and on their body later. I mean, I'm you know no judgment here. I'm not into kink shaming, so I mean, they do they do they again. Back to the question: like, is this noble or is it a bit ghoulish and weird? Um, so the followers of Hippocrates also had an interest in cautery, which is the application of hot irons to the body. So you know when like a wound gets where the word like, oh, cauterizing, yeah. Right, okay. So they believed that like certain symptoms or ailments could be cured, called cured by burning. Um, and this was still being done in 1816, where the inventor of the stethoscope offered it to TB sufferers, so people suffering with tuberculosis. According to Routon, like, René Lineck made 12 to 15 burns on the chest of a patient with an incandescent copper rod. Incandescent, like, bright orange flame. Okay. I, is this a bit where hip, 
Hippocrates or whoever was talking about all their theories and discussing like Paul Tree being a good thing. No, well, as in as in he was going to like we need to like look at the body as a whole thing. We need to look at the fluids that come out, and they're all you know everyone around him like agreeing. I mean, mm, yes, yeah, and then writing down. And he goes and like burning people, and, course, <laughs> and then they stop writing. And they're like, Whoa. and they were like, oh, Hippocrates, you're amazing. Let's write this down. <laughs> Kicks like a jazz bar. And yeah, so even up until 1816, you know, as the opening quote I had at the beginning, like only the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Has medicine been actually useful for therapy as yeah. opposed to just being like, oh, there's something wrong with you? Yeah. But more on that later. Now back to the four humours. People used to believe for a long time that there were four humours in the human body. Mm-hmm. Blood, okay. phlegm, yellow bile and black bile. Those are awfully specific. Phlegm feels like the most specific of the, of the lot. Mm. Like, out of, so humours, spelt humours like, like humour. Um, without the U. Without the U. Oh no, wait, hold on. Without the E? Without the E? Is it, is, is this where like the humorous bone or whatever comes from? There's, there's a bone called the humorous. The humorous, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'll stop asking questions. <laughs> I mean, never stop asking questions saying that's the point of our podcast. Um, but this kind of made sense for an ancient physician with only the tools of his hands. And the wit of his brow and a recently de- deceased criminal or something. Inside the human body, there's a lot of different liquids with different colours. So opening up a body, you know, for, for like, you know, for the first time and like trying to like approach it scientifically, it kind of, it was, it was the best logic they could come up with. So like the fluid around our lungs, for example, is a different colour. The goos inside the kidney and liver, again, different colours. Mm-hmm. So they tried to make a system that worked for how much they understood. So blood was hot and dry. Yes. Phlegm, cold and wet. Ugh. Yellow bile, hot and dry. Black bile, cold and dry. Cold and each dry. tended to corrugate in a different organ. I'm going to find the grossest possible topic to talk about next time. Excellent. Just to balance this out. This is important for understanding why... The understanding of the four humours. It's, it's important to understand these because certain medical procedures began to be used because therapy, which is the art of making someone better, was based on an understanding of these humours. Uh-huh. Uh, it was believed that if one of the four humours, if someone had their four humours in perfect balance, then the person would be healthy. But if a person had an excess of one or not enough of another, the person would develop particular symptoms and get ill. This was also a bit of like a get out of jail free card for doctors at the time. Because if the medicine didn't work or the doctor failed to save the patient, it wasn't the prescription or the therapy that failed. It was the person's body or their circumstances that <laughs> failed them. <laughs> Not the liters, not the liters and liters of blood that was spilled out of them because they thought it would make them better. I I know these were, this was early in medicine, but it really doesn't sound like a that much of a step beyond homeopathy at this point. I mean, arguably, homeopathy. Uh, one of the one of the writers argues. I think it was David Schneider. He argued that there's a point where homeopathy like was better than this. <laughs> Because at least that produced like a placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, like, and it didn't involve bloodletting and It didn't actively make the, the patient worse. Yeah, okay. Um, and like even now, drugs are trialled in control studies where the way like a new drug is like gets approved is does it beat the placebo yeah. effect of having nothing? Yeah. And it's like if it goes past the placebo effect and does more, then it's worth making. If like the placebo effect is better than the medicine <laughs> itself, then there's no point making the medicine. Where can we get these placebos? <laughs> Where can we get them? So we're going to give, going to get to some of the bad medicine in a minute, but just to <laughs> sum up here on Hippocrates and his like followers' beliefs, 
Uh, Rutan argues that they were skilled in prognosis, so identifying symptoms, but only insofar as Hippocratic medicine allowed, which then served as a substitute for skill in therapy, the actual art of making someone better. Right. So this amazing reputation that followed uh, Hippocrates and doctors for thousands of years afterwards were just, you know, dead set on like Hippocrates and another man who will talk about Galen being right, that like, it was like hardly ever challenged. Mm. And so they were like, wow, they're so good at like knowing what is wrong with you, but not being able to do anything about it. <laughs> um, so, oh, ah, amazing. We know there's something wrong with you. Could they do anything about it? Actually, <laughs> no. You are better off avoiding doctors completely and letting your body sort itself out at least until like 1865. It's it, it just the image of it. It's like, wow, doctor, you figured out what was wrong with me. Yes. Can you help? No. <laughs> and just walk out. <laughs> until 1865, when John Lister first invented antiseptic surgery. Wow. That's kind of like our benchmark of like, this is where we could start saving lives. Okay. But, and so Hippocratic medicine was then practiced for centuries, even though it was totally wrong. <laughs> About bloodletting, Wouton writes, through the centuries, many doctors recommended a regular regime of prophylactic bloodletting. Essentially, going regularly to the doctor to be bled because you believed it was for your own good. Own good. I Oops, mean, I haven't been bled in a while. I, I better go I, along I to mean, the doctor. I wonder if it's that thing where it's like that's probably. I mean, bloodletting sounds horrific. I would never want it ever. But back then, if the if the options were go and be bloodlet once a week or whatever, and that kind of I guess makes you feel better. Again, it's a like very extreme placebo effect. Mm. Like you, you get bloodlet and you're like, I'm oh, fine. If that's the option, and if that's option A, and option B is we're gonna cauterize your chest into a weird shape or whatever, I think I'd go with the bloodletting. Yeah, I guess so. Like allow being burnt. Allow it. Yeah. Such bleeding was held to be essential for those who did not have their, who did not vent their excess uh, of this humour by natural means. So in the case of women, that's their periods. Okay. You're letting like blood out. So it's okay. like, that's good for you. <laughs> and for men, natural means could be like a nosebleed, varicose veins and hemorrhoids. Mm. And this was seen as natural cell therapy. So if you don't have hemorrhoids, people are like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you lose You're not bleeding regularly. What's wrong with you? Have you ever had a hemorrhoid, Danny? I don't think so. I don't think I've ever had MRI. I hope it is a thing I never have to worry about. And the, in the Hippocratic sense, there's something wrong with us because we've got excess of blood. We we do. We 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 don't get into fights. We don't have nosebleeds. We don't have hemorrhoids. And like during COVID, did you get a bit feverish? I got significantly feverish. So you would have been bled because you're too hot. You've got too much blood in you. So while suffering with COVID, your like vein would have been lanced and you'd have been bled and suck a dish. Honestly. When I'm minded. <laughs> <laughs> anything that would help. Anything. I'll take anything. Anything to take my mind off the fever, go for it. But that's kind of like what doctors' attitudes were at the t uh, like throughout history. It's just like, I'm just going to try this thing <laughs> and we're going to get to some of those things soon. Oh, gosh. And as for the humours, Schneider writes, in Greek, black bile is melancholia, melancholia, upon which our word for a depressed, melancholic person comes from. <laughs> a calm, cool-headed person had an overabundance of phlegm and was therefore phlegmatic. Phlegmatic. An irritable or crotchety person would be bilious and had too much yellow bile and is choleric. And if a patient was too spirited or intemperate, he would have been called sanguine, which is the Latin term for blood mm -hmm. or sanguine. The most logical intervention for a sanguine person would have been to decrease the volume of blood. If the patient was hot headed or if the disease was causing redness or heat, the Hippocratic physician would bleed the patient 
And this was classically performed by cutting a vein, but later cupping, so suctioning the skin with a cup. Gross. Or applying leeches. Even grosser. I, well, I don't know. I think the idea of leeches is quite grim. But then leeches are still being used today yeah. in a much more clever ways because they, they release a chemical when they bite you, which stops your blood from coagulating. Right. So it keeps it the blood keeps flowing, flowing. Right. which is um, sometimes used when reattaching limbs. They use like the, that, the leeches to keep that, those areas oh, of right. the skin and the blood vessels like awake and pumping blood, which makes them easier to reattach because they don't oh. seal like they wouldn't in the normal healing process. So leeches are used now in, in, in some places to like help reattach like lost limbs. I, these are things I didn't know. And so, yeah, I guess I would prefer, I guess a leech just like, sucking on my arm for a bit rather than getting cut yeah i mean like hippocrates didn't know any of that like that's being used in like a good modern way so that was like the stat bleeding people and the understanding of the humans was standard practice for for over a thousand year a thousand years afterwards and these beliefs were also helped along by another greek called galen so galen is like hippocrates is a follower who is really important in like the history of medicine as well so born in 130 BCE, 330 years after Hippocrates, Galen was an ancient Greek physician, surgeon and philosopher. His medical research pushed forward and developed the Hippocratic beliefs put forward in the Hippocratic corpus. He was kind of like to Hippocrates to what Eminem is to Dr. Dre. <laughs> like that kind of like acolyte who kind of like goes like that bit of, but more of a step right, forward. Right, okay. Um, he continued the belief in the four humans and theories in the belief in the fundamental elements, earth, wind, fire and water. And the other reason Galen was important, um, he also turned to dissection and vivisection to better understand how things worked. Okay. So vivisection is a dissection or cutting up of something that's still alive. Okay. To see it like in the works. That's... I was thinking for a second, I was thinking, oh, vivisection sounds quite cool, actually. But then that sounds quite horrifying. It's horrifying. It's, it sounds pretty horrifying. I mean, it, it, I don't know if you know this or if this even comes up in the books, but is a person who's having a vivisection done to them... Alive. Well, well, they're alive. Did they agree to this? Um, quite often in, in the past, they, it was... Uh, criminals and like you know okay and slaves who were okay who were, could have been vivisected right so probably like, cut not open alive agreeing yeah to probably it. not agreeing right, to okay. it especially since there was no like anesthesia yeah i don't know why i asked that like yeah okay i thought there'd be like some absolute devout people who like i'm willing to be vivisected for the science but i realized there probably weren't people that passionate about it back then I mean, like, the physicians themselves seem really passionate and not, but yeah, to, happily the to do subjects. that to other, other living things yeah. other than themselves. Um, Galen studied at the great city of Alexandria and for almost 1000 years, it was the greatest city of learning in the world and had the largest library of papyrus scrolls. And using this uh, education, it was Galen who raised animal dissection and vivisection to another level. Wow. And unfortunately, we'll be talking about these two things in greater detail but mainly in the second episode when, yeah, we meet some very interesting people who really take it to the next level. Again, that question of, like, was it worth it, the Mm. pain? My goodness, the amount of animals that have died. Um, 
Schneider writes that classic Galenic teaching held that the liver was the source of blood. While correct in maintaining that blood was supplied with nutritive properties from the digestion of food, Galen was wrong to teach that blood ebbed and flowed in both directions. So yeah. we know our circulatory system is a circuit, so the blood goes around the body, through the lungs, back to the heart, so like, you know, oxygen can be... Mm-hmm. Um, it's re-oxygenated. Re-oxygenated, yeah. yeah. But... Um, Galen believed that blood and like people who followed his teaching believed that blood ebbed and flowed in both directions in response to the attractive power of the organs and the muscles. So almost like when they needed it, the organs and the muscles would pull the blood to them. Galen theorised that all the organs attracted blood to themselves and consumed the blood. So the blood like literally disappeared and its vital spirit. So they were unable to understand the function of the lungs. And Galen and his apprentices established that the vital spirit, or pneuma, entered the lungs with each breath. And that it was this that imparted the bright red arterial blood, which we know to be oxygen. Mm -hmm. But to them, it was more some sort of, there's something in the air, maybe like divine spirit, which is like brought into the Because they wouldn't have had, because this kind of like goes beyond them not understanding the body. They didn't understand really anything about the environment or how we interact with the environment, so to speak, as in like air and oxygen and microorganisms, bacteria. There was like no understanding of that whatsoever. So they were just like, the body does something. Yeah. But we just don't know what yet. Exactly. Right. Or it's like they theorise there's something in the air. Mm -hmm. It's got to be this. Okay. It's got got to be divine intervention in the air. Exactly. And Galen's great work, I don't know when it was published, on anatomical procedures was this like, piece de resistance and it remains the authoritative work on anatomy even though it is laughably wrong when examined today meaning we were practicing bad medicine for like a thousand years until Vesalius's De Humini Corporis Fabrica was published in 14 uh, sorry 1543 common era how long have you been waiting to, to say oh, that I've been practicing, been practicing saying that <laughs> and that means on the fabric of the human body wow that's Latin left behind. Oh. it's Latin it's Latin um, or is it Italian? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds good. It's, it sounds pretty Latin. Do humani corporis sabrica? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd say that sounds Latin. The, the corporis bit sounds Latin. And you'll notice that's quite a jump forward from the ancient Greeks. I was going to say, so So we've done the first thousand years of bad medicine. Because it was essentially all the same. Yeah. But I'll, there's more examples coming. Okay. Um, but this was the standard, like Hippocratic and Galenic thinking was the standard trusted thinking, which is why we needed to talk about mm-hmm. Hippocrates and Galen. People held the ancient Greeks in such high regard that to argue with Hippocrates or Galen or Plato or Socrates, you'd be laughed at mm-hmm. by like, the professors and the tutors in, the, in like, the colleges and the schools. You needed serious like scientific clout and evidence if you're going to disagree with the old boys. I mean, you're, you're, you're essentially trying to disagree with the establishment. Exactly. So, But that's exactly what Vesalius attempted to do. The mad lad. Here we go. Let me set some context for Vesalius's 16th century world. <laughs> We're jumping forward in time now over years of botched surgeries and countless people killed by bloodletting or diseases made worse by induced vomiting and diarrhoea. Countless vivisections, I'm guessing. Countless time. vivisections and dissections. And Schneider writes... Constantinople surrendered to the Turks in 1453. A small group of 15th century craftsmen fled Constantinople and made their way to Venice. This included a group of glassmakers who found themselves in one of the greatest commercial trading hubs in the world 
and the reason for their importance will come very clear now. They created innovation hubs and became better craftsmen, experimented in different ways of making glass. Coloured glass was already around since Roman times, but they became like the paragon of the craft. They made mirrors, which became commonplace enough that they became part of the fabric of everyday life in the early Renaissance of Venice and Florence. Schneider goes on to write, man could see himself for the first time. And as the personage came into focus, property rights and legal customs began to resolve around the individual rather than the former collective units of family, tribe, city or the kingdom. The new individualism and humanism of the mid-15th century would compel prodigies like Vesalius to turn their gaze inward to explore the motives of the mind and the body, following Columbus's example to discover the fabric of the human body. So the invention of the mirror, or so many things happened at once, which I'll, we'll go on to talk about in a moment, but the invention of the mirror was a massive, massive deal for the Renaissance. Like the human, The human body... And the human mind seeing itself in like sharp focus for the yeah. first time. Because before it was like you see yourself in a puddle or yeah. in a bath or, you know, but it's fragmented, it's fractured. It's not an accurate image of yourself. Exactly. And so it's interesting to think about how the individualism, the idea of self became so much stronger because mirrors became so much more commonplace. Wow. So, so the glassmakers ended up these actions and their movements eventually led to the invention of the mirror and then the invention of the mirror led to everyone seeing themselves and growing more attached to their own individual identity kind of thing and them as a person as opposed to the other like uh and also as the human body as you know this is our vehicle through this world yeah. and now we we have the means to see ourselves in in so many more different ways i get that that's got to be quite uh profound like because yeah you see yourself and you're like what the hell's that like on your forehead exactly or whatever, why has no one ever told me yeah. about this <laughs> <laughs> right now i wish there was less mirrors in my room oh, yeah. because i've accidentally shaved too much of my beard <laughs> off and now I'm just like walking around like a naked mole rat and I'm just like, I'd rather not see myself right now. I feel like I've lost some like vital essence and my potency <laughs> by losing my beard. Um, so there was a big gap here, partly because there was a kind of rule, but not really a rule that you couldn't dissect the human body because of religion. So the ancient Romans held the, the human body in like such high regard that you couldn't you weren't really allowed to dissect it. It was like mm-hmm. highly frowned upon. It was a rule. And these original like pagan religions and, and, and that ruling was also absorbed into Christianity. But ironically, nowhere in Christian church did it say like you can't really, <laughs> but it was just kind of like local diocese like kind of frowned upon it. It's so normally did yeah. it. But again, we're looking at the human body and like, ourselves for the first time again. And ironically, it was the Roman pagans who who enacted the lords that had the lasting power until like the 1300s when like you shouldn't really cut people up. And it was their Italian descendants who most powerfully challenged and reversed the laws. So humanity facing inwards, scientists wanting to understand the self, waxing views on human dissection. There was so much going on in this exciting, exciting period of time. And it's fascinating. It all happened at once. This was the Renaissance. Interest in anatomy was growing. The great artists like Da Vinci, Titian, 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 Michelangelo coexisted and competed and occasionally cooperated. And thanks to anatomists and physicians working with them, employing them to illustrate their books. And obviously we've 
probably all seen the famous, I can't remember if it's Da Vinci or Michelangelo, that the man like outspread with the arms and the legs. Da Vinci. Da Vinci. And it's just like that attention to the human body, that detail was being brought into these books that were being made. Um, And so the title of artist, the title of painter was elevated because the physicians got crazy detailed illustrations of their theories in their books for the first time. So a painter was like a lowly profession, but now they're working with physicians, which is more esteemed, and it, it raised like the artists up. Because before that, I'm guessing the illustrations of body and body parts was a lot more simplistic and rudimentary. Exactly. Know? And dissections and, you know, w- were happening, and there was in, in the 1300s onwards, there was more interest in anatomy in the mm-hmm. human body. But yeah, with these amazing artists, like the level just kept going up, the detail and how good it looks. And then authorship became cheaper because of the printing press, as did production and scientific ideas and journals were flowing and being shared quickly. And and it was accessible for the first time, too. Thinking about also around this time, physicians, surgeons and barbers were left baffled by the rise in gunshot wounds. Schneider writes that the blast injuries seen from guns and cannons represented much greater trauma than had ever been seen. But yeah, way more than a sword or axe or whatever exactly so 14th and 15th century the guns being used for the first time and throughout history physicians surgeons and barbers have been competing for prestige uh physicians were well educated for the time uh usually had lots of money and they followed hippocratic uh, hippocratic traditions of prognosis and treatment Mm -hmm. a surgeon was trained in the study of anatomy and the long-standing prohibition against human dissection had contributed to physicians' disinterest in anatomical study of any kind. So the Guild of Surgeons trained independently uh, from the Faculty of Medicine, so they became artists at cutting bodies up. Right. And the barbers were far below that. So on the bottom rung, you had barbers. 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 Right. Our understanding of barbers give you a haircut. (laughs) And then you had the surgeons, and above them all, you had the physicians. Right. So barbers first organised around monasteries where they where they performed the tonsure haircut. We associate with med- medieval monks like oh, fry the monk, tuck, the fry oh, tuck cut, the bald patch monk, the bald patch cut, and so over. Would you, would you ever get that look? What the tonsure haircut? Yeah, no, not even. But isn't the idea of it? It's like your your brain, your head is open, so that like this is I this isn't from the book. <laughs> this is like from a very weak understanding. But isn't it because like you want it to be bold so that like God's ideas flow better into your head? I've got no idea, but all I can think of is the fact that me and you kind of uh sweep our hair up into the side. Got a quiff. So I don't know how the monk look will combine with that. Terribly, I imagine. Probably awful. We'll probably have to wait another couple of years until we're truly bold into I feel like you're just, you're just all like weird fallout characters. <laughs> we wouldn't look good either way, would we? <laughs> So they organised first-round monasteries, and over the preceding millennium, barbers became experts with knives, while providing haircuts, shaves, and Hippocratic bloodletting. And that's such a weird combination it of is, yeah. things. Like, like that's, that's why I was like, barbers, yeah. like, the people who give me crap haircuts, they're the ones who, like, they're involved in this, like, pillar of people who, like, cut things up. It makes sense when you say it. Yeah. Like, yeah, they were cutting things up, and so they were good with blades, and, and they were involved with these people. But it's just so weird to go from person giving a haircut to someone cutting up a human being. So you could go from, you could go get your haircut and also get bled afterwards as well. Like, oh yeah, it's time for my usual. You mean like those shops that do key cutting and shoe repair? (laughs) Exactly, a non-stop shop. (laughs) And England barbers like melded with surgeons 
Um, so like the term barber surgeon is like a thing. You could go get a haircut. Um, and the striped, you know, the striped barber pole, the red <laughs> yeah. and white pole, that's the only reminder now of like their former job where you could go get a haircut and have your schedule bleed. What? Wait, so that symbol or whatever comes... Of the barber, the red and white spinning pole... Is is meant to show bloodletting? Exactly. Fuck. Sorry, I'm not meant to swear, swear but dear Lord. Like, yeah. That's really messed up. That's where the red and white pole comes from. I don't believe the red, you. The red of the pole is the blood. And they were just like, come get your bloodletting and just have this spinning... Come, get you, <laughs> come let your blood out. <laughs> give you a shave at the same time. Very Sweeney Todd. It's, it's really... Good God. Okay. So back to gunshot wounds. <laughs> so physicians had no idea what to do because their, their, their beef was like, we, um, you know, I was about to say digest people, they don't digest people. <laughs> they um, diagnose people uh, based on Hippocratic, Hippocratic tradition and would, like, you know, give a treatment. Um, but they had no idea what to do. Um, so they left it to the barber surgeons to try and deal with the gunshots, you know, the worst injuries humankind have ever faced. They, they left the worst injuries to the person, to the people who were, according to this little totem pole of people, to yeah. the ones on the bottom rung, they're like, screw it, you deal with it. Because they had no idea what to do. Because it was just like, yeah. As, but wouldn't the, okay. It, it's interesting. It's like, because it almost sounds like, I mean, we don't know what to do. We're going to give to someone who I guess is technically less skilled than us. To like look at I think it, or it's, it's, it's just skills. skilled in different things. So different. So skill again, set. like Hippocratic medicine is like about prognosis and like right. sniffing the pee, working out what's wrong with a person, what's wrong with their humours. But then someone's got a gunshot wound. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't what know are we going to do about that? Don't about the, the phlegm on this one. So one surgeon who was surgeon to Pope Julius II theorised that gunshot wounds were poisoned by the effects of the gunpowder, which is why they were so hard to treat. And should be cauterised with hot oil to counteract the poison. Mmm. Yum. Imagine you've got a gunshot wound and then someone comes along and is like, right, I know what to do. Just pour hot oil on it. On the searing wound. It's just like torture. The guy's writing had influence the man who said that, which led to battlefield surgeons to obediently pour hot oil on blast injuries. Do we have any record of, on how effective it was? Yes. Yeah. Schneider writes, the searing effects of hot oil might staunch bleeding, mm-hmm. so it might cauterise like, the wound a little bit, but falsely leading the traumatologist, the person who did it, to conclude that care had been rendered, we stopped the bleeding, yeah. <laughs> when in actuality, the zone of injury had been perversely enlarged and further trauma introduced. Let's just like chuck some more burning in there, shall we? Have you seen The Revenant? Yes. That's all I could think of, because I was just thinking oh, about the bit where, yeah. he, where he does a self-cauterisation. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, that worked. But Nadia's saying, it's like, yeah, hot oil, whole different ballgame, yeah. really. Yeah. Okay. So a man named Ambrose Pear accidentally performed, thankfully, a comparative study. Mm-hmm. And publishing results contradicted the established academic authority of his time. Pear writes that in the Battle of Turin in 1536, so this is like Vesalius's contemporary, um which using the same hot oil technique I just described, he ran out of oil. So during the battle and afterwards he wrote this. At last I ran out of oil and was constrained, and this is disgusting, to apply digestive made of, and they call it digestive because it's like, you know, we're going to digest the poison Mm -hmm. of like the gunshot wound because they think the powder was poisoning you. So to apply a digestive made of 
egg yolk, mm-hmm. oil of roses and turpentine. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what turpentine actually was. I only know it as a crafting item in Fallout 4. You just like get loads of it for some reason. It's a distilled resin that comes from trees, apparently. Okay. It's just like a gooey, weird thing. That night, I could not sleep easily, thinking that by default in Cautery, I would find the wounded to whom I'd failed to apply this same said oil dead of poisoning. So he's lying awake being like, oh no, those men I didn't pour burning <laughs> oil on. They're going to die. Um, and this made me get up at first light to visit them. Beyond my hopes, I found those on whom I'd put the digestive d- dressing feeling little pain. So, so these are the ones I hadn't put the digestive feeling dressing on. They weren't, they were feeling little pain from their wounds. So the ones he did nothing to. Yes. Okay. Basically. They had little pain from their wounds and they weren't swollen or inflamed and having spent quite a restful night. But the others to whom the said oil had been applied, I found fevered with great pain and swelling around their wounds. From then on, I resolved never again <laughs> to cru- so cruelly to burn poor men wounded with gunshots. So he had the ones that he did pour oil on. He had the ones he didn't pour oil on. Did he have... What about the ones that he poured... That he did the di- digestive to? So the, so the digestive was the Were well, the oil. ones who, who yeah. didn't. So the ones who had the bo- pouring... The boiling hot oil poured on They're them. the ones who were still messed up. They were mangled. Okay. But then the, the ones... The ones that had no treatment from a doctor. The ones who were just left alone. Uh-huh. They were doing much better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just there on the battlefield, wounded. Doctor comes up. I'm out of oil, and the guy just with the wounds, like, oh thank god, oh, thank god, oh, thank god. <laughs> just, just leave me. <laughs> just let me let my body do its thing. And it was like people, like at, there were points when people actively avoided the doctor, like you were saying. I'd rather not get burned. I'd rather not be <laughs> bled any further. After you. I was like, no, the... you need this. <laughs> just throwing hot oil. I've been at a medical school for four years <laughs> studying Hippocrates. Please let me burn you. Um, okay, I'm not going to bloodlet you. I'm not going to throw hot boiling oil into your wound. So as I mentioned earlier, the Renaissance, you know, the, 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 the mirror makers in Venice, like this was the stage set for the arrival of the man. As Wouton writes, is regarded as the founder of modern medicine. Mm-hmm. So Andreas Vesalius was born in Brussels, Belgium in 1514. His father was the imperial pharmacist mm-hmm. and a grandfather, and he had a grandfather who was physician to the Archduke Maximilian. So he comes from a long line of physicians. Um, and this is all to say that he was set up for an elite, elite education in medicine. Such cool names back then. I know. Andreas Vesalius, so cool. Maximilian, come on. I know. He enrolled in medical school in Paris and then went to school in Louvain outside Brussels and then moved to Italy where he would become a famous teacher and dissector and accrue many students and followers. Back to my question, and and my thought, at, at what point do people stop being heroes of medicine and are actually just weird ghouls who have weird curiosities, or is it both? Like, we have a mutual doctor friend who listens to the show and <laughs> won't mind me saying this. When we heard he was going to be a doctor, we were like, yeah, he's so smart, he can do it. But also, oh my God, he's going to be a doctor. <laughs> and, and like, you know, it's fair, he's one of the weirdest guys we know. <laughs> is he? Do you remember at sixth form when, when he was like, when you found out he was going to do medicine? <laughs> no, I, th- I, I think, I think we're, we're really narrowing down this person's identity. <laughs> this point. But what I will say, I think it was more, it's, it's scarier when you hear a, a 17 year old be like, I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to save people. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, and it's just like, you know, and it's like, I can see him as one of these like, very curious but weird people. And like Schneider writes, as will be seen again and again, the invention of surgery was crafted by tinkerers, oddballs, lonely geniuses, inspiring inventors and stubborn misfits. Vesalius was all of those things. The the thing that, that came to mind when you introduced Vesalius was... um the uh the, the phrase you know the arrival of modern medicine because i think that's the third time you said this is the arrival of modern medicine each time it's like hippocrates ah finally we've got someone who knows modern medicine and then galen aha finally we know someone who knows modern medicine and it's like thousands of years are still fucking it up so if we if we ex modern out of out of hippocrates and galen it's like this was medicine and then and and now this is like, now it's like it, it, it's just it's just a funny Hippoc- thought hippocrates was the father of medicine yeah vesalius is the is the hero of modern medicine it's, it, it's just a funny thought that each time there's someone being like i don't this time we've got it right just remember us. there was that there was that gap in the middle between galen and vesalius where people just got hurt <laughs> I mean, it was the Dark Ages, so... You it, know, was, like, it was uh, definitely the Dark Ages. They, they didn't call it the Dark Ages for nothing. Oh, it's like just being bled, being burnt. Oh, so much more to come. Go home to a glass full of very dirty water, not knowing what you look like. Oh, it's like beer was safer, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so Vesalius, all of those things, a genius, an inventor, odd, curious about life. He visited the cemetery of the innocents in Paris while he was there studying on many occasions... Picking through the decaying corpses and maggot-cleaned bones, later recalling his long hours in the cemetery, gave gravely imperiled by the many savage dogs. I feel like we miss a step here. So he went from being like this son from like a very imperial lineage of of skilled precisions and precision and stuff. Has this amazing education and upbringing. Travels around Europe. Because so this is why he's in Paris. This is why he's in Paris. So he's but a young man in Paris at school, learning surgery and that's He's a young man in Paris going to cemeteries and just dealing with bodies. Yes. Okay. And like competing with all of the wild dogs that are there to chew on the bones as well. <laughs> just like Vesalius, like trying to grab a bone out of dog's house. I need to study this! <laughs> He's, he's, he's looking at the bone being like, okay, Back beast. I, can, I can either study this or I can throw it really far so that the dogs leave me alone yeah. and I can get more bones. I imagine, I imagine Vesalius, like, based on what I know of his reputation, I imagine Vesalius was in that, that situation far more times than like, we could possibly imagine. <laughs> Vesalius, and, you want to come out for a drink? No, I'm busy Not tonight. tonight. <laughs> not tonight, my friends. <laughs> Like, he displays, like, supreme curiosity, if not his, like, morbid oddity. And, like, he struck out on his own in Paris because he didn't just want to accept the teachings of his professors who wanted to, like, stay away from the bodies and just be like, here's what Galen said, mm-hmm. without getting his own hands dirty. So, you know, we've got to give him credit for, like, you know, getting stuck in. In in other words, he was just looking for human bodies to study. Yeah, he 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 had like that genuine curiosity and actually wanted to like question things. He wasn't just blindly following the previously established stuff, which I can totally respect. Which is what had been happening for yeah. a thousand years. Which is, I mean, it's, you know, it's a standard thing. It's like if you're told, you know, this is the correct way and it's been this way for 500 years. That's totally understandable. I do still question the whole grave robbing aspect, but you know. Keep that question in mind. <laughs> okay. Um, so when he was in Louvain a few years later, so he's finished his education in Paris, he moved back to Louvain and uh, back to, to um, what was he again? Belgium. And Schneider writes, while searching for the bones of executed criminals, Vesalius and a physician friend stumbled upon a cadaver 
hanging upon a gibbet. So as we know, like bodies were like displayed outside mm-hmm. to be like, don't break the rules or we'll do this to you. He inspected the cadaver, concluding that the body had initially been burned and roasted over a fire of straw, but had been freed of flesh by the birds. And he wanted that corpse. <laughs> In Vesalius's own words, observing the body to be dry and nowhere moist or rotten, I took advantage of this unexpected but welcome opportunity, and with the help of my friend, I climbed the stake and pulled the femur away from the hip bone. Ugh. I mean, an unexpected but welcome opportunity I would describe as like finding a fiver on the floor. <sighs> yeah. I guess. Sorry, there's just that last image of, like, pulling the leg out from the body. Oh, I guess what else? <laughs> um, so upon my tugging, the scapulae of the arms and the hands almost came away, although the fingers of one hand and both patellae as well as one foot were missing. After I'd surreptitiously brought the legs home and arms home in successive trips, leaving the head and trunk behind, so that's, like, the main body part. Was this even of- legal back then? Like, surely, like, the body was meant to be up there on I'm purpose. I'm pretty sure grave robbing was, like, has always been frowned uh, but, but But this wasn't even grave robbing. This was, like, a body hanging in the street or... or purposely been put there, yeah. yeah. I allowed myself to be shut out of the city in the evening, so, like, hiding until curfew was in, so it was, like, on his That's own. a great way to say it. I allowed myself. <laughs> I allowed myself to be shut out of the city in the evening so that <laughs> I might obtain the thorax, which was... Held securely by a chain. It's funny, like, the entire city is there, like, keep that lunatic out of here. <laughs> and he's just there, like, I'm letting Literally them Literally hiding in the dark <laughs> until everyone goes to bed like a fucking vampire. With a dead body. With, with dead, dead body parts. So great was my desire to possess those bones that in the middle of the night, <laughs> alone and in the midst of all these corpses, I climbed the stake the, with considerable effort. Sorry, I climbed the stake with considerable effort and did not hesitate to snatch away which I so desired. Finally, and secretly, I cooked all the bones to render them more suitable for my purpose. When they had been cleansed, I constructed the skeleton that is preserved at Louvain. So he made the first anatomically correct skeleton on this criminal's body. (sighs) That is incredible. The only issue I have is that I've only relatively recently finished reading... Mary Shelley's Frankenstein <laughs> and the imagery just feels very reminiscent like I, I can see where Mary Shelley would have gotten inspiration for a lot of this 100% yeah because if that's what people are actually doing it's not suddenly so far-fetched it's not so weird that you know a, a scientist or whoever was like putting together body parts from other dead people and that's it where where's again it's like that fine balance of like are is are you is this no noble pursuit or is this like mad scientist yeah. and it's like would we have what we have now without this crossover? I guess it's easy to to, to say in hindsight, well, well, why didn't you just go to the authorities and get a dead body or whatever? But like, it was frowned upon. Yeah, as, as you say, it's like it, it's you totally wouldn't get away. People with it. had were misled to think that it was illegal when actually it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Gosh. But it was at Padua in Italy that Vesalius would begin his great work to challenge the authority of the professors and teachers before him. So we know he's not afraid of getting his hands dirty and like, getting <laughs> yeah, no in there. So Schneider writes in ancient times, the early physicians used the three methods of the regimen of the diet, the use of drugs and the use of hands. And by degrees, physicians by Vesalius's time had promptly degenerated from the early physicians, the Hippocratic ones, leaving the method of cooking and the preparation of the patient's diet to nurses. So basically like delegating. Mm-hmm. So obviously, as we mentioned earlier, they believed in like diet and exercise, um, 
you know, certain certain like med- medical remedy- remedies and, you know, bloodletting as mm-hmm. well. Um, and, and like using different uh, medicines to to purge the body of certain um, undesirable liquids. Um, but yeah, by Vesalius's time, this was being delegated. So leaving the method of cooking and the preparation of the patient's diet to nurses, uh, the composition of drugs to apothecaries and the use of hands to the barbers. So the bloodletting would be performed or all of these things would be done by other people. So this is the first time we start, I get, yeah, it's, it's delegation. It almost starts to sound a bit like specialization. Exactly. And there's like guilds and, and all of that's going on. And like we, we understand when, if you're studying medicine, you start off together and then you specialize later. Yeah. This is much different, like where, there was a school for surgeons, as barber surgeons, and a school for for like physicians. Mm-hmm. It was seen as two separate things. Okay. Um, in essence, the physicians they didn't want to get their hands dirty, and at anatomical dissections, the head physician would be placed in a high chair, looking over the hall, and directed the lowly barbers, the lowly surgeons from the top, and they made the cuts that the physician wanted. Vesalius wanted physicians to still use their hands to treat patients. And it's with Vesalius's hands on approach on his approach on still living animals and the continued robbing of fresh graves <laughs> that we will pick this back up oh my in the history of surgery part two. We will finish the story of Vesalius and meet two more interesting yet morbid men, including John Hunter, who is said to be the inspiration for Dr. Doolittle. Okay, that that's not the doctor I was expecting. I was trying to think of any horrific doctor from popular culture. Not yeah, <laughs> you don't imagine to have that in the same breath yeah. as like grave robbing and yeah, yeah, and vivisections um, and stuff. The episode, I, I, there's there was a lot in there, and you know we haven't gotten to the real gore and the real like cruelty. Yet. I was hanging on every breath. I was like, I was like, what horrific, horrible, gruesome thing is going to come up next? And it's it's coming up next. We're we're going to get to you know pregnant dogs oh dude yeah and we're gonna get to like bodies being flayed before being studied so like the family don't recognize who it was before yeah i was about to say i was was about to say i was like man we can take a break and then like record like the next bit like straight away because i'm enjoying this i wanted to hear more after hearing that i changed my mind (laughs) yeah we might need a break break bit of a break from the gore i'd say like next episodes like the the ride gets more bloody. Okay, I don't know um, how how to twist that into a. You guys should totally stay tuned for next episode if you want to hear more gruesome stuff. But I think people want to. Oh yeah, hear absolutely, how this it's fascinating, and it, and it leads like it will lead into to kind of like where we are today. So yeah, that's early surgery. That's, that was very fascinating. Main takeaways: it's still useless. <laughs> Not now, obviously, but at this point it was like, you know, medicine was almost useless. Like you were better off being left alone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's the, what we learn about the human body is only going to like ramp up because of Asalius yeah. at this point. And again, that question I kind of want to leave us with is, you know, noble pursuit, mad scientist, where is the line? And, you know, I don't want to be bled. And I'm so glad that when something is wrong with me, I'm not being burnt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, uh, it's ideal. Yeah, it, it, it really does boil down to uh, do the ends, justify the means kind of thing. And living in, you know, 2022 with I was gonna say, the hindsight. Main, my, my main takeaway, I'm glad I wasn't born during any of these periods. 100%. I mean, like, this is also in the backdrop of, like, the Black Death is happening. <laughs> um, I'm sure 
yeah, and then the Black Death is happening and, and there's just so much death and I suppose like the value of human life mm. very different as well. Yeah, imagine living in a pandemic. And just thinking like, would we treat, I mean like people's bodies are treated the same way in like medical school now. And you have to train on, on, on dead bodies. I mean, well, I was like, we're donated the, now. Yeah, the difference is it's like it's, uh, yeah, you, you donate, it's with consent, it's not, uh, you don't, take the local criminal and say, you there. You there. You were going to help train <laughs> these people at university. And it just be kind of, you know, again, they got better at telling, like, oh, there's something wrong with you. What can we do about it? <laughs> We've what? almost figured it out. Diet and exercise, you'll be fine. <laughs> We've almost figured it out. Maybe another hundred years. Um, but yeah, it feels good to have to have a lot of that out of my hands. Um, <laughs> I can see why. Yeah, but like... We're getting, this is like, this is like the essential journey to get us to like the real meaty bit, which is coming up next, if no pun intended. Yeah, the, the, the really juicy content. Juicy. Juicy. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Well, George, thank you very much. That was very enlightening and a bit of an emotional roller coaster. I mean, like, so. our first part one as well. It's our first part one. And we'll see, we'll see just how it all pans out in part two. Um, follow us on our Instagram, which is Thirsty, thir- thir- <laughs> oh my it's goodness! Been a while. It's been a while. It's been a while since we've done the plugs. Follow us on Instagram at uh, Thirty for Knowledge. Follow us. Uh, I, you already said that. Uh, I was thinking. Well, I was, I was like, we should really have a Twitter or something. So I might set that up. Either way, Thirty for Knowledge at Instagram, Thirty for Knowledge at Outlook dot com. Send us messages. Tell us how you think this has gone. If you if you are a medical historian and I've made a mistake, please let me know so we can fix it. Um, and yeah, hit us up on the Outlook and love to get some messages. It'd be great. Yeah. Tell us what kind of topics you we're on. To. We're on Apple Podcasts now as well. We are on Apple Podcasts. Forgive the old artwork. And uh, if you like our new Spotify artwork. Oh, the new artwork is amazing. Yeah. I absolutely love it. We look great. I, I've, I've got a beard in that one. You've got a beard in that one. Our foreheads are looking normal sized. I was just like, you know, just being a really rubbish barber this morning. <laughs> Should have gone back to barber school. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, that's it. We'll see you next time for part two. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. It's good to be back. It's so good to be back. I've been Danny. Stay stay healthy out there. You were meant to say you've been George. I have been George. You've been George. Stay healthy. Take care.